Hey everyone, can you give me a wave so I know you can hear me? Brilliant, fantastic. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to uh, John chapter 19 and we will get there uh, very soon. John chapter 19, we'll get there very soon. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you, particularly if you've never been here before. It's great to have you with us worshipping in our Sunday Night Live. Um, What we're going to be doing is we're on the third part of our Easter sermon series. which we've entitled Seven Words. And as we head down towards Easter, we're looking at the seven words that Jesus spoke to us uh, from the cross um, as he was being crucified, as he was dying. And we find these in our Gospels. There are three in Luke and there are three in John. And Matthew and Mark actually have the same one. So they repeat it. They both have the same one. So that brings us up to a total of seven. And we've done uh, part one, which was Father, Forgive Them. Uh, The second one last week was today, you'll be with me in paradise tonight. We've got behold your mother, the third word. And then the following, uh, the remaining four are my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished and into your hands I commit my spirit, which we will look at as we head down uh, towards Easter. Now, these words are significant because they've been spoken by Jesus. They were spoken at the end of his life as he was dying on a cross. They were the culmination um, of his earthly ministry. And they sum up to us as God's people what Jesus' death um, on the cross um, achieved for us. I don't think it's any coincidence. There are seven of them, uh, which is the biblical number for completeness. And so these are seven uh, like facets of a diamond, which point to different kind of aspects of what Jesus' death on the cross, subsequent resurrection achieved for God's people uh, throughout the ages. And it is a real privilege to be able to listen in uh, to the heart of our Savior um, as he's dying and he's speaking out these final words because they reveal the heart of God to us. Uh, they reveal what's important to God and they reveal to us what Jesus' death on the cross um, achieved uh, for us. So last week we did the first word, oh, sorry, two weeks ago we did the first word, which was Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we learned from this that Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice to pay the debt for our sins, uh, even though we were still his enemies. And as a result, we can receive forgiveness from him. And then last week we looked at the second word, uh, which was today, you will be with me in paradise, which he spoke to the thief on the cross who was with him and we found out that uh, Jesus offers salvation to all who know they're guilty and cry to him for mercy so if you've missed either of them they're on our website they're on our podcast you can get them on SoundCloud um, but please go catch up with them and you're hearing what God's sort of saying to us um, as a church and as we come into our third word which we're going to find in John's gospel today just to remind you of the context of all these words we're looking at Jesus is being crucified at this point he's kind of come to the end of his earthly ministry uh, and he has been uh, betrayed Um, he's been abandoned he's been uh, put taken to the trial um, in a farce of a trial and been found guilty despite being innocent being condemned to death and he is now dying in the most gruesome way um, ever devised by man they say a crucifixion was um, invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. They they perfected it, this horrific form of execution so it would draw out uh, the pain and suffering of the victim for as long as possible. It was considered so horrific that uh, Roman citizens were actually exempt from it. It was just too barbaric to execute a Roman citizen in this way. Um, it was so horrific that a new word was invented to describe the horror and the pain of the individual who was dying. And we get the word excruciating, which literally means excrucio from the cross. 
It was a word to describe the pain and suffering of it. And the victim suffered not only just physically um, from what's happened, the flogging that took place beforehand, which often killed people on its own, and then coming out and being nailed to the cross and hanging there. But actually, it was also uh, a, a painful emotional journey because they were publicly humiliated. People were crucified in the most... Um, called public area, often on crossroads or on public thoroughfares so people could look at them. People held abuse at them and so there was shame and humiliation on an emotional level as well. And the victim often took hours, if not days, to die just to draw out the pain and the suffering. And in that context, Jesus is speaking these words, which they're powerful in and of themselves. But when you realize where he was at the time, they add to the awesomeness of them. So if you've got your Bible, I hope you're in John chapter 19. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. So if you go to verse 26, I'm going to read verses 26 and 27, which are our third word. And it says this, verse 26, John 19, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Let me just read that again. It's such a short passage. It's, it says this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So this word, we see Jesus actually speaking to two specific individuals. Last, uh, first week, he was speaking to his father in heaven. The second week, he spoke to the thief, the criminal next to him on the cross. Here he's speaking to two individuals. So actually, our word, our third word is actually two things he said to two individuals on the cross. And they are Mary and they are John. Um, and the, their presence at the cross, the fact that his mother was there and the disciple John were at the cross is a testament to their uh, love and relationship with Jesus that actually despite what he's going through, despite the suffering and everything that's happened, they are there in his last moments. And so I want to look to the words to his mother and then the words to his uh, disciple. So verse 26, it says, when he saw his mother. Now, when he's talking about his mother, he's talking about Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary. And we know a lot about Mary when we read our Gospels, particularly we read Matthew and we read Luke. And that contains what we kind of celebrate at Christmas, the Christmas story. The first few chapters of each of those Gospels are all the stories about going Mary, angels coming to Mary, being pregnant, though being a virgin, going to Bethlehem, having the baby. We find that in those Gospels. And in John's Gospel, which we've just read, this is actually only the second time uh, that Mary appears. She appears once in chapter two. And then in this point, and in chapter two, she appears at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, uh, where Jesus turns water into wine, his first miracle. Uh, his mother is there. And now she's here um, at his last moment at his death. So she's been to a wedding at the beginning and now she tends a funeral at the end. And then it says, so that's his mother. And it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we know this is John, John, the brother of James, one of the 12 of Jesus' disciples and actually the author of the gospel that we've just read. And this phrase that John used to describe himself um, in the gospel is uh, it points to the closeness of the relationship between Jesus and John. 
Uh, John was the one at the Last Supper who was sitting closest to Jesus and said he had his head on his chest. There's obviously an intimacy and a connection and a closeness uh, between the two. And both of those two, his mum and one of his closest friends, is standing there at the cross looking at Jesus at his lowest ever point, physically beaten, uh, scarred, disfigured, publicly humiliated. I mean, it must be the worst torture in the world for a mother to see that happen to her son or for a best friend to see that to his friend see him suffering and dying no there's nothing he can do about it it's just it's happening right before their eyes and so they are standing nearby uh, watching uh, Jesus die so Mary is watching her son die and G uh, John is watching his friend die and they're both watching the one they thought was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one appointed by God uh, to lead his people uh, into um, God's kingdom, to save his people. And there he is dying on a cross in front of him. What a low moment that would have been. How horrifically um, difficult that would have been just to experience that and be part of that. And they must have been devastated and just completely knocked down by what's happened. And then into that context, into that devastation, into that humiliation, into that defeat and abject just terror of what's going on, Jesus speaks. And the first one is as he speaks to his mother. It says he speaks to his mother. And he says, first thing he says, he says, woman. Now, in our English, that can sound a little rude. Uh, it can sound a little curt. If I addressed any females in the church and just said woman, you'd probably there would be a reaction. You don't speak to people like that. But actually, in the context of reading, in the language we're reading, this was a perfectly normal way to address a lady. Um, if we go to John chapter four, where Jesus met the woman at the well, he referred to her the same way. It was just a, a greeting uh, for someone who was a female. Just that's how they would speak them. So he says, woman. And then he says, behold. Now, in my translation, that's that word behold. Other translations have different one. And it's a bit of an old clunky word, uh, a bit kind of like, OK, why is that word in there? Why have they use that? Well, the reason they use that word there, because the translators were trying to get across the word that was used in the original text to, to get across the force of it, because it's, it's more than just look. It's more than just see. It's, it's something more forceful. It's something that needs to grab your attention. It is an arresting word. And so behold is one of the best. English word to sum that up and so Jesus is saying to his mother he's saying woman he's addressing her behold look you need to look intently you need to pay attention to what it is I'm going to say and then he says your son he singles out John who is standing there as well and he says to Mary his mother he says woman behold your son he presents John to her as her son and the words Jesus used actually scholars tell us they allude to the words of legal adoption uh, that would have happened um, at the time if you were adopting someone into your family these are the kind of words you would use so what's happening here is there is an illegal adoption going on as Jesus is presenting John to Mary as his son they are he is bringing together a new family relationship which did not exist prior to that uh, John and Mary were not related like that. Mary wasn't John's mum. And but now Jesus is saying, actually, this is your son. This is your son. There is a new family connection there. And it's interesting because Jesus was the eldest son of Mary. Most people assume 
that Joseph has died by this time because he's just not mentioned. Uh, and that means Mary would have been a widow. And so Jesus likely would have been the breadwinner of the family as the eldest son there. And so what Jesus, what Jesus is doing is bringing John into that relationship as someone to provide for Mary. Mary's other children, we know she had other children, they were probably home at Nazareth, they're not mentioned, um, which would have been many miles away. And now John is being brought into this relationship with Mary where he is in a position to provide for her. So even Jesus, as he's dying, is connecting his widowed mom with someone who will provide for her. So even at Jesus' lowest point, he is thinking about his mom, he's thinking about others and saying, actually, I need to provide for her because I know what's going to happen to me. So even in Mary's darkest hour, even what's going, Jesus is still bringing provision to her. And then he speaks to the disciple. And he says to his disciple, turns to him, and he uses the same language. You see, again, behold, you need to look at this, John. You need to pay attention. You need to be focused. He says, your mother. And so what he's just said to Mary, he's now reversed that and spoken it to John. And so there's a two-way thing going on. It's not just a relationship. One way, you're now the mom. Actually, John, you're now the son too. They brought together uh, into a new family relationship, which is two-way, mother to son, son to mother. And the same adoption language is used. So there's that legal kind of binding in the mind of Jesus as he's speaking to them. And so what was separate, God has now brought together with those two. And it says John's response there, right at the end, the last part of that verse, it says, and from that hour, from that moment that Jesus spoke, the disciple took her into his home. So John's response to the words of Jesus is immediate. He does it straight away and is in obedience. He takes responsibility for caring and providing for Mary. He brings her into his home and, and he cares for her. And that took, that took place right at that moment. He didn't dilly-dally about it. He didn't think about it, make excuses. His response was immediate. And so even at that lowest point, particularly for Mary, watching her son die, Jesus is speaking in, he is providing for her, and he is creating this family connection. So we've looked at that. There's two things I want us to take away that we can learn from this situation. And then there's a couple of things I want us to do out of this. So what can we learn from what we've just read? What can we learn from this third word? Well, there are two things. The first one is a kind of more surfacy lesson. And then the second one, I think, is a deeper, more profound lesson that we need to take on um, out of these words for Jesus. So the first one, Jesus provides relationships for our times of suffering. Jesus provides relationships for our times of suffering. Now, there's a kind of first sort of obvious surface lesson in the text that Jesus provides in this situation. He sees the suffering of Mary and of John, who are kind of looking on at him dying, and he provides relationships in that suffering. Mary and John would have been the lowest point of their lives, sort of seeing what's happening, and in front of them, Jesus is forming new family connections. He is bringing two people together who will look out and care for one another. There is a practical dynamic uh, to this relationship, but there's also an emotional provision for the two of them um, as they look out for one another as a new family uh, relationship is um, formed. And this is a principle we see modeled by Jesus himself, looking out for people, but also we see rolled out throughout the New Testament that we are to look out and care for one another. And the reality of life is that we face pain and suffering 
and loss. We go through difficulties and low moments and dark moments. And in those times, the Lord provides relationships to help us get through. The New Testament as a whole is riddled uh, with commands for us that way we are way the, the way we are to interact with one another as disciples of Jesus. The Bible says that we are to love one another, serve one another, be devoted to one another, live at peace with one another, encourage one another, build one another up, have equal concern for one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, pray for one another, minister to one another, bear one another's burdens and seek one another's goods. Good, sorry, not goods. Seek one another's good. These relationships are things to embrace as we face difficulties and hardships in life. These are relationships that have been formed by Christ that are there for us to pull on when we find hardship. And the reality is we are going to face difficulties this season that we find around. If that's not rammed that home, I don't know what will. The life is going to get tough at moments and we need relationships to help us get through that, to, to lean on one another, to find comfort in one another, to find encouragement and prayer from one another as we follow Jesus together. And Jesus is forming this here at the cross and he's asking his church now to live that out one another. And this is a mutual relationship. It goes both ways. We're both to give and to receive in it. And the second thing we learn, which I think is the deeper, more profound lesson than just the two people caring for each other, is that through this, Jesus creates a new family where there was no family. Jesus creates a new family where there was no family. Through Jesus' pain and suffering and death comes life, comes life, comes life uh, in abundance, comes life with family. It's not just about forgiveness and salvation. It's about relational connection to the wider family of God. And this truth, this truth that God has created a new family sustains that first point of actually us building relations together. We are part of something so much bigger than just an individual. Mary and John didn't have a relationship beforehand, but now they do through Christ, through his death and resurrection. They've been formed into a new family. And the interesting thing about this um, passage is that neither of them are named John and Mary we know they're John and Mary because we know who they are we know who Jesus mother is and we know who the disciples are referring to but actually they're not directly named they're representatives for us Jesus uh, John as he writes it doesn't uh, name them and because Jesus didn't name them he talks to them in a more general sense and what we've got through this is Jesus creating this new family which we call the church at that moment on the cross, something new began. A new family was birthed. And we see this family being outworked through the book of Acts. When the spirit falls after Jesus' resurrection, right at the beginning of Acts, it falls on the gathered group and they pile out in the streets speaking many different languages and the church is birthed right there. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see the church growing from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, planting churches, planting family groups all over the place. And then we read through the rest of our New Testament, the letters that were written mainly by Paul, but others as well, explaining what's happened, explaining this new family that God has created uh, from all people and all tribes kind of coming together. And then we skip right to the end of Revelation. You see a multitude standing for the throne of God from every people and every tribe and every nation worshiping God together. And this whole family has been caught up to God's eternal purposes. And this family that God has created overcomes 
barriers that would normally hinder it in the past, things that would get in the way, things that would be natural obstacles from people relating to one another. And the New Testament is really clear. The writings of Paul talks about Colossians 3 and Galatians 3 and says barriers that would have kept us apart from connecting barriers like ethnicity and language and social status and gender and family groupings have been broken down in Jesus and the most important thing that we can know about is that, that we are all in Christ that we relate to God on an equal footing through what Jesus did not through our own works and we can relate to one another in that way as well the family language is used throughout the New Testament to describe the church we're called brothers and sisters we also describe even the leaders of God's church the elders they're the ones who are to lead God's household Again, that family image, that's what it's there. And what, things that would divide us normally have been superseded by the ultimate thing that unites us, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. And, Jesus, um, and Paul particularly goes on about this and he rams his home and he uses the image of the Jew and the Gentile or the Jew and the Greek, um, depending on what translation you're reading. And the reason he uses that is not only because it was current at the time for him, but actually that division between people is probably the greatest division that's ever existed between people in history. And now Paul, he was a Jew. He wasn't just a Jew. He described himself as a Jew of Jews. He was the most Jewish you could get. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was uh, from the tribe of Benjamin and he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day and he knew his law and he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a great teacher. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. He never broke it. He was, he was that good at being a Jew. And he's saying, actually, I count all of that, all of that in my heritage. I count that as nothing compared to knowing Christ. And he says that that barrier that would have separated me from the non-Jews, the Gentiles, he said that has been torn down because Jews were separated from every everybody else by a number of reasons. They were separated ethnically because they were the descendants of Abraham and the Gentiles weren't. They were separated theologically because they served the one God, the God of Israel, and everyone around about served these multiplicity of gods, these pagan gods with all different names. They were covenantally different because they had the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of David. They were part of God's covenant people. The Gentiles were not. They were politically different because they had the nation of Israel and the laws for rulings and a king that, that led them in the land of Israel. They were physically different because of circumcision, the sign of the covenant that they had been given. So there was every reason that Paul as a Jew say, I don't need to be connected with you. I'm separated from you. But Paul says, no, that's all gone in Jesus. That's all gone in Jesus. The Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek come together and there is just one family of God. And no matter what your background is, no matter your, uh, your language, your ethnicity, your social status, whatever's been going on with you is, is superseded, it's greater because we are united in Christ. And that's the one thing, that's the fundamental and that joins us and that is more powerful greater than any earthly distinction and separation that we can have so the first word spoke of jesus as the perfect sacrifice as the payment of our sins the second word spoke of salvation being all who know that they're guilty and cry for mercy can be saved and the third word speaks of a new family that god has created for people who've been forgiven and been saved and cried out to god for mercy so what can we do with this? There's two things I'd love you to do out of this um, as we kind of try and earth this 
um, uh, tonight, what we've learned. The first one, I'd love you to prioritize friendships with godly people. Prioritize friendships with godly people. Build godly friendships with good people. This pandemic that we're in has brought pressure and pain and suffering in so many ways and so many areas of our lives. But one of the key things it's robbed us is personal contact and relationships. We don't get to be together with people. We are separated. And even when we're out with them, we have to stay distant to them. We cannot get close to them. And we're wearing masks, which is just separating us from it. And so what we need to do is we need to make so we're doing all we can to maintain our relationships and cause them to flourish in this season that we're in. We need to build relationships with other people who love Jesus um, so we can enjoy the good times together. We can encourage one another in God. We can spur one another on uh, keep going we can pray for one another we can give prayer and we can receive prayer we can walk through the difficult times of pain and suffering with one another and just be honest about how we're doing we can confess sin to one another and say i'm struggling i'm finding it difficult and you've got someone a safe place uh, to share it with we can forgive one another like that first word any relationship any close relationship with anyone will bash up against one another at some point and you'll end up hurting each other that's just an inevitable from two broken individuals coming together. They'll just knock into each other and end up hurting. But we need to learn to forgive one another, to rebuild relationships. Things that are broken need to be fixed. It needs to be forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration in our relationships. We build relationships that are two-way, that actually I serve and love you and you serve and love me. Um, that's how we kind of come together in this. And in difficult season that we find out ourselves in now, we need to make good choices to do what we can to maintain and build and enjoy the good relationships that God has put it put it around us. So I'd love you this week to think about what you can do to build and maintain godly relationships with someone. Guys with guys, girls with girls. Do what you can. Call them up. Just say how you're doing. We can do that. We can make phone calls. Call them up. You can go out for a walk with someone socially distant you're still allowed to do that uh, within our current circumstances do that as lockdown eases there'll be more opportunities to spend time together but don't wait till then start now do what you can to build and maintain godly uh, friendships and prioritize you see this as an important thing christ died for us to have this so go for it um, i'd love to recommend a book um, on this at christmas time we, um, we gave a book to everyone in the church, the kind of Christmas present, to say we love you, be blessed. We were overwhelmed by the response. We got so many people saying thank you so much for the book, we read it, God spoke to me, really blessed. Um, and we sent a whole variety of books to people and just try to kind of find things that they might like and bless them. Um, and it was brilliant. And, but one of the books that I sent to some of you will have got this, but most you will have, won't have because there just weren't enough copies. I wanted to give this book particularly to the guys, actually, because we're not as good at this at building relationships as ladies in a general sense. Um, but this is about friendship. And I'd love to have given it to every guy in the church and say, read this and act on it. And it's called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. And it says a relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. And it talks about friendships with one another, but also friendships with God and the power and the importance of that. And no matter what life throws at it, no matter what your uh, status is, you can always have friends. You can always have friends and you can always 
build uh, friendships. And so I'd love if you want to read this, I've got some copies to give away. If you want one, just put your name in the chat. We'll get a copy to you because I found more, managed to source more. So I have more of these. Um, but this is a brilliant one just to help you on this whole topic of friendship. If you want to read a bit more, read that. Made for friendship, Drew Hunter. Grab a copy of that from uh, me. Second thing, last thing. So we prioritize God relationship. The second one is prioritize the family of God. Prioritize the family of God as well as building personal relationships, my friendships with an individual. Please prioritize building with God's family, the family that Jesus died to make. We have technology that can help us with this. It's not a replacement from in person, but it's the best that we can do. We have screens. We can make calls and, and do that kind of thing and connect. And we can gather online. It's like a church now. We have our life groups and meet midweek and we pray together and do those things. But prioritize that time. I know it's tough um, in is it eight days. 15th of March 2020 was the last time we met together uh, as a church and gathered in, all together in one place. Um, I know I was preaching, it was the last one of the Teachers to Pray series when we were going through the Lord's Prayer um, and that last Sunday and the first, uh, the Mother's Day that followed was the first Sunday where we couldn't meet together. It's a grim milestone to reach, but we're gonna reach it soon. It'll be 12 months since we gathered together. And I don't know about you, but I feel that. I feel it, I don't like it. I understand why we've done it and trying to keep people safe that's all good I'm behind that but at the same time I yearn to be back together with you I want to be in the same place with you I want to worship with you I want to see you I want to preach I want to be able to see you and interact with you I want to see the kids running around I, I want all those things and I want to I want you guys to take seriously prioritizing God's family whatever it is I remember in my early 20s um i'd become a christian i'd got baptized and it was very much an individual thing it was me and god and trying to work out what that meant but i remember god wrecked my heart for his church and i saw something i hadn't seen despite growing up uh, kind of in a church sort of context sort of community his passion and his heart for his people and what it meant to be part of god's great family great god's worldwide family god's eternal family that stretches through the ages and i was utterly wrecked and i committed myself to god and i said i will do whatever it takes in life this life to serve you and serve your family and i spent the last 20 years doing that and i by god's grace will spend the next 20 years doing that serving god and serving his family and god's plan for this world is there's only one and that's his church that he is gonna grow and multiply throughout the nations of the world. And my heart, my plea to you is to prioritize that. It is not an afterthought in our Christian walk. It is not something that we get to dip in and out of. It's not something that we, that we get to pick and choose on. This is the family you've been born in. You've been born again into a new family. God is our father, Jesus, if you will, is our big brother. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. And this is what we're a part of. There's no way of opting in and out. You are in because you are in Christ. And my heart for you is that you prioritize it, you opt in because it will ultimately do you good. It will do you good to be together with God's people. It's God's plan to grow you as a disciple, to be part of a family. It's God's plan to teach you more about his grace and mercy through his family. It's God's plan to reach the nations of the world and see his kingdom come more and more 
And so make a choice, opt in to God's family, opt in to what we're doing, be part of this. Don't be on the edge, be you are part of it, but co-acting, come on, be in it. I'm praying for the day where we get to meet in person and do this probably. But in the meantime, we've got this format here, a screen. And so we're going to make the best we can. But Jesus died for this. Jesus died to create a new family, to form new relationships. And when we come together and we see people from different uh, languages and ethnicities and ages and backgrounds all move together and we're just being together, it talks about the love and the wisdom of God is displayed to the world there. That actually petty squabbles, which could normally separate us, actually are, are left behind. And we come together and we stand before God and all on the same footing and worship him together. And we are, we are all in Christ and no one's better than anyone else. And we've all been saved by the same grace. And we're all part of the same family. And he is our father in heaven. And we love him and we serve him. And so I'd love us to be a people that prioritize the family of God, prioritize what it means to be part of it, to love and to serve one another, to build godly relationships, but also to be part of the wider family and just enjoy the differences that God has brought together. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to finish. And we're going to pray. And I think that'll be the end of it. And I'll hand back to uh, Ben and we'll finish our time together. So maybe you just want to kind of close your eyes, um, open your hands, whatever you kind of, whatever works for you, whatever uh, you feel comfortable uh, doing, um, we'll do that. And then I'm going to uh, just pray for us all. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your death on the cross. Lord, we want to thank you for what you did there. Lord, we want to thank you for what you went through. Lord, and we want to thank you for what your death brought for us. Lord, it brought us forgiveness. It brought us salvation and new life, uh, Lord Jesus. And it brought us a new family, Lord Jesus, an eternal family and a family that will last beyond this life, Lord. How you formed this family, God. We take no credit and we look to you as the one who is sovereign and the one who moves in power. You form something here that we are all united together in Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts to see that, to receive that, to, um, to understand that more and more today. Lord, for those who are already sold out, and God, I pray you take us deeper. That for those who are kind of on the edge looking and thinking, actually, is this really what God wants me to part of? God, I pray you speak to them now, that you open their hearts to receive you. Holy Spirit, we pray you fill us with that sense, that spirit of adoption, that we cry out to you as our Father. They would look around and see brothers and sisters, not just strangers or people who look different then, but actually brothers and sisters who are united in Christ together. Lord God, we pray that you would continue to grow and cause us to flourish as a church. We pray you would teach us what it means to build godly friendships with one another, where we love and serve one another, where it's mutual, it's two-way. God, I pray you teach us what it means to build friendships with those who aren't like us, who are older than us, who are younger than us, who are in different backgrounds or languages or just different jobs and, and professions and have come from different parts of this nation or the nations of the world god bind us together uh, lord jesus that we might be your people lord and i pray god that through that it would speak to a watching world that seeks 
in so many ways to divide and put people in groups. God, we pray that we would stand against that and show your wisdom of what it means when you died and rose again to form a new family. Lord Jesus, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your love uh, to be poured out on us. And Lord God, we thank you for this new family you formed. And we thank you for the privilege, the incredible, eternal privilege to be part of it. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Love you guys. Miss you all tremendously. Um, back over to Ben.